Hello, everyone. We're going to talk about investing. Um, <laughs> I am thrilled to be here with Elliot Robinson, a partner at Bessemer Leads Their Growth Practice, co-author of The Cloud Report. Um, he sits on a number of great boards, Toast, Toast Auth0, Launched Darkly. Also outside of Bessemer, he um, is a board director at Black VC. So, Elliot, welcome. Thank you for having me. I, I want to set expectations. Uh, this might be one of the few investor panels where you won't hear the terms outside of when I say it now. Crypto, NFT, DAO, and consumer. So with that, let's You mean we're not going to talk about Bored Apes the entire no, time? No, we're not. We're no, not. no. We don't want you to be Bored Apes, so we're going to talk about other things. Um, so, um, Elliot, let's start with um, just the pace of the market, which yeah. has been insane. Um, I think there's been something like $600 billion has gone into venture capital globally in the last year. 3,000 of those investments were Series C or beyond, so the yep. growth stage. How are you guys, um, you know, how are you guys changing the way you cover the market um, or think yeah. about coverage given the pace? It's a great question. Um, and shout out to a few of the LPs in the audience I've talked to today where I feel like I've been workshopping this question all day. Um, one other data point that I think is worth talking about as a backdrop to your question is that in 2021, you know, venture fundraising smashed all records going 48% year over year. So there's more dry powder for the next cycle, wherever we are in the cycle, than ever before. So, you know, answering your question of how have we responded, I think more generally with the bigger funds and particularly some of the crossover funds who've come down market and to kind of growth stage venture capital, they've done a more is more approach. Um, there's this term that keeps being thrown around of a lot of investors were building a private index of software and tech companies. Hmm. I still don't really know what that means. Like an index of private assets is, is an interesting, it's just a portfolio, to be honest. Um, so what that's meant for us is we've taken a less is more approach. Now, Bessemer is kind of known for our road mapping process. It's this really deep thing where we look at kind of 40 areas every year. We meet as a partnership twice a year, and we determine what are the kind of 20 to 25 roadmaps that we think are highly investable now that will pay off you know, over the next five to seven, call it 10 years if we do it really, really well. So what that's meant is we take the 25 roadmaps we really care about, uh, at the growth stage, pair it down to seven to 10 that we really want to be smart on. And for us, our growth portfolio ranges between 13 and 15 companies per fund. We're not investing in 100 companies and a super mega fund. We're a billion and a half, which... I mean, it sounds crazy to say it's not a big fund. It is, but vis-a-vis -vis some of our competition, it's not the biggest. Yeah. So it's a really about less is more. And we can kind of dig into how do we make the right decision because a lot of the time in such a highly competitive market, people talk about winning deals. The question is, are you winning the right deals? So, uh, so on that point, I think actually you brought this up. It's interesting. The idea of a private index. Yes. So there's a lot of conversation amongst VCs around, okay, what do you do when a single firm or single partners invest in five companies that compete? Oh, yeah. Um, and so how, how do you go about making the decision and, and kind of thinking about where in the competitive set at that point you choose to invest and will you invest in competitors? Yeah, so that I can answer the second part of your question really quickly. We don't invest and competitive companies. Um, you know, at times you could argue that we've left some returns or future returns on the table by not doing that. Do founders, do founders value that stuff? Founders really care. <laughs> um, 
Look, in the growth stage, particularly the last five years with newer folks that have come into the space, they're not as active as investors, right? They're not necessarily taking board seats. They're not, we at Bessemer like to pride ourselves as being the first call partner, whether it's on your cap table, your board. We want to be the first person you call when you have a tough, thorny issue to think through. And if you're a passive investor, you don't really care. Um, you know, we issue the stay of the cloud thing. We have these 10 laws of cloud. Cloud law number one is in the cloud economy, scale wins. So typically, in every vertical in cloud software, the number one company takes about 73% of the market. And that typically leaves two companies. You can still make money at the right price in the other two. We just fundamentally, if we're in one already and we think there's tangential overlap, we just won't play there. And does that, does that ever come in conflict with an investment you've made in your early stage fund? Oh, all the time, yeah. So we have to do, you know, sometimes I feel like when we're all investing or looking at a new company, you call your lawyer and ask for a conflict check. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of what we do. We get really excited about a growth stage company. And a lot of the time, if you do it right, you have to go a little deeper into the product roadmap because a lot of the times they might not compete today, but if you kind of weigh the product roadmap of both companies, you know somewhere in the next six to nine months they're going to compete. Now that's a judgment call because the roadmap is kind of future things that they may or may not do or might not achieve. But if you know it's squarely going to happen, it, I think it's just best to stick with what you know. Yeah, no, it's super interesting. And so, um, and I also just think it's it's interesting to think about when this sits within one fund versus a two fund structure, yeah. which does create for some separation. For sure. um, so. Um, you know, moving over to you, we'll, we'll get to kind of the uh, the firms that everyone must ask about on the stage. They're not Voldemort, but you know, the, we will name them. Um, but before we do that, um, uh, I guess like, as how do you think about your value prop in a market that that yeah. is as frothy as this market, and and how how much has it evolved, or how consistent is it over? I mean, it's how many years has Bessemer been around? Fifty, sixty? Forty as an independent. Yeah, but but you know, like before, many people here were born. So, um, what what is, what is the value prop you're putting into the market with founders? Yeah, I think it's bifurcated. You you have a spectrum, but the bifurcation really happens is: Are you an active investor, meaning board member, board observer, or like formal advisor, or are you a passive investor, which is we're buying shares of a company, we sit on the cap table, call us if you need us, but maybe don't call us, right. uh, is usually the relationship a lot of <laughs> passive investors have, particularly in the growth stage. Um, so for us, the first value prop is being that first call partner. That's table stakes for us as active board members. Um, but beyond that, many of our firms have built out platform teams, which we certainly have. Um, but it's certainly gotten more uh, functional over the last decade, where it used to be we have people who can help you with a myriad of things, a lot of firms want to be known for one great thing. Um, you know, one of our peer firms who was on the stage earlier, they're really good at marketing. I think we probably know who I'm referring to. And if you're a consumer company looking for uh, a voice or share in the market or some distribution, they're probably really good at that. Because we lean a little more heavy towards um, enterprise SaaS, uh, SaaS go-to-market, product-led growth strategy, ecosystem growth strategy. We have dedicated people on our platform team. And luckily, because we've been doing it so long, we have the best um, of our cloud giants who've graduated to be public companies. A lot of those C-suite operators are now operating partners and advisors for us. And they'll do a two or three or six month engagement with some of our most promising companies to help them avoid 
some of the challenges that they face. Yeah, I've, I've thought recently as you know, capital has been disaggregated from you know service services, yeah. uh, caring versus kind of sure. just lowest cost of capital. There should be some pricing for good, consistent human beings, and you guys have That's been that time. throughout the. 25 years I've had exposure to venture capital. So I'll give you the little compliment there. So um, how um, how are you guys, uh, well, maybe tell everybody, how many funds do you guys manage? What's the size of the fund? What's the typical investment? And then we can get into fund size. Yeah, so the global platform for Bessemer is about $9 billion. Um, our early stage platform fluctuates somewhere between two and two and a half billion, depending on the fund size. And then on the growth side, we're a billion and a half split across two funds. The boring stuff is kind of our average check size out of the gate is 30 to 40 million. Um, we've gone as small as 17 and as large as 175 over time in a company like Canva, which is just an incredible uh, company led by an awesome founder. Um, but, but again, typically it's 30, 40 million and we like to build a position over time. We've led multiple rounds. Um, it's very rare subsequent rounds, but we might lead the C and then if it goes really well, kind of lead the pre-IPO round. Um, but that, that's kind of the structure. And it's also a mix between investing in some of the best of early stage Bessemer and then what we describe as net new growth investments that we either missed or lost or didn't win in the early stage. Terrific. So um, I think you are on, how many boards are you on with Tiger? <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> How many boards I'm on with Tiger is a funny way of, of structuring Well, I mean, maybe like you have a fair I would fair say number. they're affiliated with most of the boards. That okay, I, how I, many affiliations yeah, do you so have? Yeah, so six out of seven. Six out of seven of your companies have Tiger in the cap table. Correct. Right? I can't like, That's them. pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, so how... How do you think about, you know, when and how you work with a crossover fund, how you yeah. advise founders around considering taking a crossover fund versus maybe another type of, you know, more active board member kind of fund? Sure. I think this entire conversation, although we're having a growth stage chat, I think we're seeing these crossover funds come down market into seed and A, which is kind of interesting. And I've had this conversation with a number of LPs and investors even here today where, I really care about values alignment with founders and operating teams. And quite frankly, like, if you prefer the give me capital, that's the value add and leave me alone strategy, whether it's at the A, B, C, D, or beyond, that's not the right fit for me. And, and that's okay. It could be an awesome company. But the real joy that I get from this business is when I got married, I think I had six CEOs that I had backed, one, two of them more than once at my wedding. And seeing them grow in their own life, and I learn a lot from them, and that's my favorite part of the business. But in terms of answering your question, like counseling founders, there's a couple of things to think about. Um, we're in an interesting time now where the market's changing and it's pulled back a little bit. So a year ago, everyone probably in the investing world remembers all their articles that were written about founders saying, just give me your money and leave me alone. I don't want your help. Well, that's kind of changed a little bit in today's market. Um, and quite frankly, some of the incentives that were used to win these deals, not associating with any one fund, this combination of giving really early secondary, a really, as you could argue, kind of absurd price at times, um, but also giving founder grants. So here's money, the highest price, or i.e. less dilution, and I'm actually going to make you whole after everyone who's invested already takes solution. That's like a really interesting thing. And now, unfortunately, we have some founders and management teams who are looking at the last round price, 
looking at the public market pullback, questioning whether is the last round price really true value or fair value, and thinking, well, I already took 10 or 15 or 20 million off the balance sheet. I'm actually only a $30 million ARR company, sometimes 15. And like, what's the incentive and the win from here until where I think my company might be valued in the future? Yeah, so the, so the secondary topic, I think, is an interesting one because um, it sometimes pits the early stage and the growth sure, stage yeah. against each other in a, competitive, in a competitive round. And there's you know, a degree to which um, sub, subscale salaries and being in these companies yeah. for a long time. How do you think about what's healthy from a secondary standpoint? And do you feel like the market is changing as, in that regard as well? Yeah, I, I don't think there's one broad brush you can put out. I mean, look, I come from, uh, we were talking in the back room, nowhere, Virginia. And if someone were to say, hey, here's secondary of $2 million, that's life-changing for me. Um, it might not be life-changing for another founder. So I think, it, I think you really do have to go deal by deal. And quite frankly, if you've been running a business for five or seven years and you've got it to 20, 30, 40, 50 million plus of ARR, like, yeah, you should take some risk off the table. Yeah. And the amount of time you probably lost with your stress and family, like, you've earned it. Yeah. What, what I think troubles me more is um, we talked about fundraising, AUM. Yeah. Um, there's a disproportionate amount of dry powder for high-quality deals. And you, we've all experienced when founders go out to raise $20 million, you don't do the deal. And then the press release says they raised the $80 million Series B. And you're like, wait, how did we get here? And then when you talk to people, they bought every piece of secondary, founder secondary, management secondary. And this is like a $5 million ARR company. And it's not because the founders or the management team or the company are asking for it. It's because the market dynamics and some of the big funds pushed for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and so, um, you know, there are these very consensus-oriented investments, and they, sure. you know, I think we've all seen them go in every part of the cap table from something small to something 4X or something reasonable to something 4X we, we would have considered reasonable. Um, how do you guys think about, you know, what is consensus and something you'll chase and do almost at any price, yeah. cost, and I don't know if you do, um, you're known for your discipline, your diligence, sure. your metrics, versus something that's non-consensus that five of your competitors may say no to, and you, you might might do. And maybe what's most interesting is, what do you do that's non-consensus, and is there a compete at all cost for something that is consensus? Sure. I mean, I think as a fund manager, like venture capital is a practice of investing. Fund management is a practice of investing itself. And I think if you look at your portfolio across your fund, chasing one individual deal or every deal that comes through the door, that's momentum, right? Consensus, it's typically tied to momentum. There's a space we like, everyone's talking about it, look at the cap table, numbers are up and to the right, we're willing to pay any price. You can get that right every once in a while, but if you think about your portfolio, your fund is 15 to 50 investments. If you chase that, you're going to get it wrong more than, than you like, in my opinion and experience, yeah. quite frankly. If you want to be a long-standing firm, you've got to pick the right deals and win the right deals. Um, but I guess if you're building this private index, what you're really betting is the spaces that you're putting your capital in are going to grow and kind of rise all tides. We we're talking in the back room as well. If you look at the Emerging Cloud Index, something that, that we put together in 2013, if you put all of your capital in those 40 companies, you get an 844% return. Like if you just close your eyes, like that's pretty awesome. So we are right and early on the cloud thing, but in terms of making sure you do the right themes, the right companies, and back the right founders, that's where the non-consensus thing comes out. And I'll, I'll end the, the answer by saying, my first investment was in a great company called Hinge in San Francisco. Um, Latinx founder uh, wrote a 30, 
$32 million check in the business. My favorite story. Um, immigrant founder, grew up in Miami above the Denny's uh, that both of his parents worked in. And the biggest reward at this company is Cockroach of the Month. And Dan <laughs> Perez told me, Elliot, you're the first investor that walked through the door and was not only excited by it, but understood it. And many of the investors were put off by it. He puts it there for a reason, by the way. Like, he wants people to know um, how important that is, is because that was part of his upbringing. And he realized, I can't get rid of these fuckers. And, like, when I start my business, I want every employee here to have a cockroach mentality. Like, we're built for a nuclear winter kind of thing. And, you know, I was lucky to, to lead his round. This is pretty public at around 300, I'll give round numbers. The last round was 6.15 billion and they're an IPO candidate. So Congratulations. really excited about that. That's true. So non-consensus can be in the business, but for many of the investors I know and really admire in the, in the audience, it can also be on the founder type. Yeah, amazing. Um, so um, let's hit real quickly on um, kind of metrics and where you're seeing a bifurcation in valuations sure. in this sort of choppier market. Um, yeah. And are you seeing that bifurcation? Yeah, so um, I'm a mathematician by training. I went to the greatest liberal arts college in the world called Morehouse College in Atlanta. Shout out. <laughs> um, and so I, I drill into my team all the time that, um, you know, numbers will always tell the story and the story can never tell the numbers, right? So we did this analysis of all the deals done the last three years. We looked at the entry... Uh, ARR multiple. This is cloud stuff, right? And we also calculated this thing looking at six years of cloud 100 data, something we do in collaboration with Forbes and Salesforce, so private company growth rates, and came up with this metric, this trend that we saw called growth endurance, Mm -hmm. where you can actually predict for private companies where they are in scale, what their growth should look like, will look like, quite frankly, 90% of the time, year over year. If you look at the entry price or your entry ARR, We know right now the market is trading at 15x average ARR multiple. You can actually back in using growth endurance. How do you get to a 3x return? And a lot of the 50x, 60x, 70x, even 100x deals that were done, again, every once in a while, one of them will be right. But if you have a complete portfolio full of those deals, the growth endurance of six years of cloud software data says you're not going to get that portfolio right. So for us, it's really about going under the hood and making sure that we understand what growth endurance looks like, what NDR looks like, what CAC payback looks like, all the metrics that we talk about. But there is like a mathematical framework that can tell you if you enter at you know, 60x multiple today in the Series C, you know the exit multiple is between 15 and 20x, yeah. and growth endurance is going to be year over year 70% of last year's growth it will give you a range of what it is. And I just don't think, and at least in the last two years, many people were thinking about that. Yeah, no, that's terrific. I actually think we should chart that down and tweet it out later because, uh, did you guys catch that? Can it's put public that on, on our website. It's not, it's not, you're happy <laughs> um, to go to the website. Go, let's go to the rule of the 40. Yeah, the rule sure. of 40. How many of your companies have lived by this rule versus straight away from them? And have you seen valuation changes for those who are living by them? Yeah, I mean, look, we're, we're definitely a metrics-based firm, but we tell founders and operators, don't be like too beholden to your metrics. There's a time and place for the rule of 40. And typically that happens at scale. Like once you hit kind of 30, 40, 50 million of whether it's run rate, net revenue, ARR, depending on what you invest in, you really want to think about what's the relationship between your top line growth and profitability or even a break even. And particularly in today's market, I'm, I'm 
you know, on the board of two companies that are IPO candidates for this year, um, one of which is very likely to get out because they've got an awesome rule of 40. And the market is actually going to um, give un disproportional credit to companies that, in this company's case, they're growing 70% year over year, uh, and they've got about a 10% bottom line margin, and they're at about 190 of ARR. Yeah. Like when you think about that level of scale, still growing 70%, law of big numbers makes growth at that scale harder. But, you know, six of their last kind of 12 months were break even or cash flow positive. Like that type of company is going to perform really well where we're seeing, you know, there's still top line growth, but widening losses in a lot of companies. Makes a ton of, uh, makes a ton of sense. Um, uh, and, and so, um, Quickly, let's touch on, you co-authored the Cloud Report, the Bessemer Cloud yeah, Report, sure. something we all read, live by, sleep with. Um, Got to give you guys I a shout not. out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, what, uh, can you tease, it's coming out soon, tease anything that's sort sure. of uh, interesting uh, for the crowd? Yeah, I talked to my partner, Byron, who works on the report with me, and he would kill me if I talked about any of the predictions. We're going to give him a drink later <laughs> and try to get a prediction out of him, just so, I, I'll, I'll say two things. So one, um, we talked about a prediction which we've had a number of years uh, in 2021, which was um, just vertical SaaS, this tsunami. We've always underpredicted how big vertical SaaS companies get. Toast, for example. Mm -hmm. um, we're in a great company with some investors here called Shop Monkey, which is SaaS for auto repair shops. You walk in, and Toast, for example, they started with the terminal at the front. They now have 30 different SKUs in the restaurant and quick service environment, yeah. back of the house, front of the house, menus, CRM. You can really digitize the entire business. So we think that continues. What I'm most excited about coming out of the pandemic, also a 2021 prediction, which you'll likely see a tweak on, is that SaaS and the SMB. Like SMB really is the backbone of the economy, right? And as people are reopening, they're rethinking their cost structure. They're rethinking their access to labor because people aren't necessarily taking those jobs in the same way. So they're looking for no, more kind of efficiencies, um, you know, ways to leverage data science and software in new ways. And the big, there's no tease here, but most of the state of the cloud has been focused on North America and a little bit of Europe. Um, and this year, I think what you're going to see is a much more global perspective. Yeah. Um, the SaaS ecosystems and industries in places like India we're seeing some early things in China that are really exciting, um, and particularly on the continent, which I'm personally really excited about, starting with FinTech and I think going more to general SaaS. I think if I were to predict, to give my own prediction of the state of the cloud, which is fun, um, for the next five years, it's going to be really global and digging into to areas and NGOs that we didn't in the past. Okay, did we just uh, upset Byron or are we okay? No, I cleared okay, it with perfect. him. Last so time, la last question. Unfortunately, we have so much more yeah, I'd love sure. to go through a topic near and dear to both of our hearts. I actually often tell women getting involved in the industry, do enterprise software. It may not be as sexy as Web3 or crypto, but it's the fastest way to create wealth amongst women. Um, amongst women, uh, and I think we trend towards consumer quite yeah. a bit. You've been sort of a leader in, in the black community, um, black VC on the board, etc. Make us uncomfortable for a second. How is the industry is obviously never moving fast enough, yeah, but sure. how could we move faster? What do you see? What's your call to action for folks in the audience? Um, yeah, we'd love to hear your Yeah, thoughts. sure. So I'll say a couple of things really quick and we can wrap. So um, Two Sundays ago, I was shopping for a wedding. My wife and I were going through. Mazel tov. And my Morehouse brother, Austin Clement, sends me this text. And he says, great quote in this pitch book article. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> he sends it to me. And I said, oh, well, yeah, I did say that. 
Um, and that is that there's a lot of diversity BS in venture capital. There still is. Um, even after all the work that's happened the last two years, going back to what I tell my growth team, this idea that the story tells the numbers, the story can never tell the numbers, like fundraising for black managers is a half of what it is for non-black managers. So for all the LPs in the room, you really do have to just ask yourself, why is that? Right? Like, most of the managers that go out and raise their capital have the same track records, if not better. The, the data says that I think what you're supposed to do with emerging managers are find investors who have deal flow and proprietary theses and can unearth dimes in a rough that you're not already overexposed in. But the, the dollars don't tell that story, yeah. which is why I think it's not, not all, but a lot of BS mixed in there. So that's one. Um, you know, I've spent... After George Floyd, I saw a lot of uh, experienced VCs put up, oh, I've got office hours for black founders. Ugh, disgusting. Um, the question is, like, why do you have to set up a separate calendar to meet with people based on their skin color? Like, that, that's kind of the, the question. So I raised my hand and I said, look, I'm going to dedicate three hours a week to meet with any VC fund north of 50 million of AUM who does not have a black investor on staff. Um, and I was shocked. I did, I think, 89 of them. Um, 89? 89 of them, including probably half of the Sand Hill Road funds. That wow. There are no black and general partners on And have you seen that translate into hires? Uh, yes and no. There's some theater mixed in. Um, you know, a decade ago, a lot of funds decided to change everyone's title to partner so they could tell their LPs that look at all these women partners and people of color partners they have. But there's no economics. There's no check-writing authority. I think there's... Um, five black partners that can cut a check over $10 million in the country. Yeah. We just unfortunately lost one with Tyson, Tyson Clark, rest in peace. Um, but that's, that, those are the numbers, right? So when you see like, all these partners and announcements, the best way to tell if it's theater or not is um, the disproportionate amount of marketing that goes along with a black or female partner versus a normal partner where you don't even know, and then you look up and they're on tin boards and have allocated $300 million. So the real takeaway, because I know we're running out of time, is it does kind of like begin and end with LPs. Um, yeah. And it, because they are the lifeblood of our industry, and if they do hold GPs to the fire about I mean, they know, like when you, when you do talk to them, they know, yeah, we're doing like this titling thing. So now they say, look, we've grown diverse partners at the firm by 50%. Did you really though? I mean, if economics didn't change or authority or responsibility didn't change. And then if you know that you're cutting um, or making commitments to black or Latinx or women-led funds at 50%, the average commitment of your non-diverse fund managers, like that, why? Like... You really have to explore that. Um, I'll end with this because we talked about it. Um, my wife and I keep uh, two pieces of tape on our bedroom, bathroom mirror, and it says, are you proud of what you did today and did you ride for your people? Uh, and if I'm washing my face or brushing my teeth and I can't answer those questions, then I failed for the day. So when we are talking about what does it really mean to be an experienced investor going into year 17 and how will you define success Look, money and, and returns are a result of a lot of things. Picking great markets, luck, timing, good due diligence and analysis, but it's not a purpose. Like money is a result, it is not a purpose for me. It might be a purpose for one of you in the crowd, I'm not begrudging you. Um, so when I think about what does success mean for me, it's um, being the best investor I can, 
such that I can have very honest conversations with LPs in the room who I admire and, and respect, but can also level the playing field so that my skin color or the fact that I went to Morehouse College does not impact my ability to invest in the brightest and best founders that will define the next generation of business. Ellie, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be up here thank with you. you. And um, great session. <laughs>